Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. In August 2017, hundreds of thousands of ethnic Rohingya Muslims from Myanmar fled across the border to Bangladesh. The Rohingya are a minority population who have long faced discrimination by the Buddhist Burmese majority. But in the summer of 2017, things got very bad very quickly. A Rohingya militant group attacked some police outposts in the Rakhine state in Myanmar, which is where most Rohingya live. The government and military responded by attacking Rohingya towns and villages, unleashing massive violence against a civilian population. This drove over 600,000 Rohingya to refugee camps in a region of Bangladesh known as Cox's Bazar. Now, some 700,000 Rohingya refugees remain there to this day. The violence that drove these people from their homes was certainly a crime against humanity. A UN official called it a textbook example of an ethnic cleansing. It might also have been a genocide. That, of course, demands the question, who will pay for these crimes? What does accountability look like in a situation like this? And can perpetrators of these crimes ever be brought to justice in the first place? On the line to discuss these questions in the context of the current plight of the Rohingya refugees is Parampreet Singh, Associate Director of International Justice Programs of Human Rights Watch. We kick off discussing the events of August 2017 before having a longer conversation about possible avenues for justice for these crimes. This episode pairs well with my conversation last week with former Obama administration official Ben Rhodes, who discusses the fall from grace of Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Peace Prize winner who was the de facto head of state of Myanmar while these crimes against humanity occurred. So if you've not listened to that episode yet and are interested in learning more about the political context in Myanmar in which these crimes occurred, do have a listen to that episode as well. And for those of you who are premium subscribers, the bonus episode I'm posting this week is my conversation with the former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues, Stephen Rapp. He is a longtime international prosecutor of war crimes and crimes against humanity, and he tells his really incredible personal story about how being the victim of a horrendously violent crime in his early 20s propelled him to a career in international justice. It's a great conversation that's available to premium subscribers. To become a premium subscriber, to unlock that episode and dozens of other bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash global dispatches, or just follow the links in the description field of this episode, or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Premium subscribers also get access to my daily global news clips service, Dawn's Digest. This is a premier news clip service for people who are professionally engaged in 
international development, humanitarian affairs, and human rights issues. It can be yours, complimentary, if you become a premium subscriber. All right, now here is my conversation with Param Preet Singh of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So essentially, uh, two years ago, uh, nearly two years ago, um, there was a massive sort of campaign by the authorities in Myanmar to, in essence, push out Rohingya from Rakhine State, sparked off ostensibly by attacks on military installations in Myanmar, so attacks the Myanmar government claims that there were attacks by this um, Rohingya group um, on some military installations, and that f- sparked this backlash that, in essence, resulted in um, pushing out three quarters of a million, or upwards of three quarters of a million Rohingya from Myanmar into Bangladesh. And what do we know about sort of how some of these atrocities or abuses were carried out? Like, what do we know from, say, witness or survivor testimonies about what happened? Like, are there any illustrative examples you could share? There, I mean, I think a common thread, I mean, the brutality took many forms, but I think a common thread is just the viciousness um, that the the Myanmar military used in, in essence, uh, pushing people out of the country. You know, uh, rampant sexual violence, I mean, that was something that very much marked this iteration of the crisis. And I say that because, in fact, this is part of a much larger campaign against the Rohingya that's, um, you know, at least we at Human Rights Watch have concluded amounted to crimes against humanity. Um, you know, going back several years. Um, but certainly rampant sexual violence, burning down villages, uh, murdering people, uh, burning homes with people still in them, uh, butchering people, putting them in mass graves, you know, pushing children, you know, little infants down wells. I mean, it's unfortunately uh, 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 a horror, a list of horror, you could say, um, of, you know, a number of coercive acts to, in essence, as I said, push the remaining Rohingya out of the country and into Bangladesh. So the the military's ostensible justification of this was counterterrorism or counterinsurgency. They were responding to an attack on a military base, but did so, you know, way out of proportion to what the, the attacks were and also, you know, attacked the civilian population from which these few militants came, driving, what, like hundreds of thousands of people over the border. Like, I guess, what do we know about, like, the journey that, that these hundreds of thousands of people took fleeing Rakhine State in uh, Myanmar over the border to Bangladesh? I mean, certainly that it was harrowing. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's definitely the subject of, you know, further scrutiny, for instance, by the International Criminal Court, exactly how this you know, what they they say is most likely a deportation as a crime against humanity, how this deportation unfolded, what kind of acts accompanied that deportation such that, you know, people were pushed out. 
Uh, I mean, like I said, you can't imagine the brutality. I mean, certainly for me, reading about it um, and hearing the testimony of of victims who who survived, um, you know, the the barbarity that was used, um, again, just the rampant sexual violence, mutilation of uh, women and girls um, who may or may not have escaped, some of whom were killed, some of whom, you know, left, although, you know, bearing the scars of sexual violence, you know, to find themselves in Bangladesh. I guess another um, sort of aspect of this crime against humanity was just kind of like how swift it occurred. I mean, you had, I remember following these reports at the time and sort of being at the United Nations just like a month after this happened in September of 2017, Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, you just had like hundreds of thousands of people uh, who were just newly became refugees flowing over the border to Bangladesh. I think a UN official at the time called it like a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so all of a sudden you have something like 700,000 new refugees in Bangladesh. What are the conditions like in the camp? How is the international community responding so uh, I'm happy to talk to the talk, speak to that. Um, but I think you really put your finger on something that's especially chilling about how this campaign unfolded, which is, you know, the swiftness of it. It, it suggests a level of planning um, and uh, pre-planning, in fact, to, in essence, you know, expel, you know, nearly a million people. That doesn't just happen, you know, you don't just snap your fingers and that that happens all of a sudden. Um, this was clearly, you know, part of a larger strategy to, in essence, rid the country of the Rohingya. In terms of the conditions in the camps, I mean... They're pretty dismal. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's Bangladesh's resources are, to be clear, stretched. I think a lot has been asked of them in terms of, you know, taking in these refugees. And, you know, they're not forcing them to go back as of now. Um, but, you know, you have to imagine that, you know, if you're going to push out 700, upwards of 750,000 people into a neighboring country, that was already housing, you know, uh, several hundred thousand refugees from previous crises from Myanmar, uh, that their resources are stretched to the limit. And unfortunately, you know, the Rohingya are paying the price for that. And, and, you know, there seems to be like haphazard attempts by the government of Bangladesh to, you know, figure out like what to to do with this group. I know there's this kind of harebrained idea to um, send like a hundred thousand of these refugees to this island uh basically this like sandbar as Mm -hmm. it's been described to me that was extremely vulnerable to you know flooding and monsoons and and typhoons um meanwhile it seems the government of myanmar seems on paper willing to take back some refugees but no one actually wants to go because Mm -hmm. uh they're rightfully fearful of what would await them um you know should they return Fearful, and what are they returning to? I mean, beyond the fear, which I think is, you know, completely understandable under the circumstances. I mean, a lot of villages have been completely destroyed and military installations have been put in their place or other sort of structures have been built on top of them. So they're not returning. What are they returning to? They can't return to their homes because their homes just don't exist anymore. Um, So I think, you know, on the one hand, Myanmar claims that it's willing to, to welcome people back, but you know, it has done very little to put in place the conditions where people can actually return. So, you know, two years ago, there was definitely an ethnic cleansing, certainly crimes against humanity, maybe genocide uh, that that was perpetrated against 
this population by the government in, in, you know, what you said and what seems to be very sort of clear and orchestrated and systematic campaign by the government. Um, what today are the prospects for justice or accountability for these crimes against humanity? What does that, what does that look like today? Well, there, there are a couple of avenues. Um, so I think first and foremost, I think I referenced this earlier, but the International Criminal Court, the prosecutor has asked for permission to investigate at least some of the crimes um, uh, following the August 2017 um, <clears throat> ethnic cleansing campaign. And basically what she said is, look, we think the crime against humanity of deportation may have been committed here. And the reason why we have the standing to bring this case is because the crime wasn't completed until the victims crossed into Bangladesh. And lo and behold, Bangladesh is a member of the International Criminal Court. So that therefore gives us, since part of the crime was committed on the territory of an ICC member state, we have the jurisdiction to investigate. So that request is still pending. Um, I think, can you talk uh, a little bit about that process? Like who's it pending sure. with, and what are like the sort of legal considerations that are being reviewed in order to sure. enable this to go forward? So the prosecutor has basically asked for permission. She's seeking to open an investigation on her own initiative and the way that works under the Rome statute. And the Rome statute um, is the treaty that created the international criminal court. Exactly. Um, the way that it works under the Rome statute is that in order to move ahead, she needs to get the permission from the court's judges to do so. So in um, June, she she did precisely that. She she filed an application. It's, you know, I think around 150 pages, basically laying out the crimes that she thinks may have been committed. Deportation is, is at the top of the list. There are a couple of other crimes against humanity that, you know, could potentially be investigated as well if the investigation is authorized. Um, now we're waiting to hear what the judges decide. Now, in the meantime, um, they want to hear from victims. So part of this process requires victims, you know, submitting their views on the prosecutor's request. And the deadline for them to do that, I believe, is the end of October, October 28th, if I'm not mistaken. And then the judges will take the prosecutor's request. They'll take the, um, what, you know, whatever victims have submitted and then make a decision as to whether or not the investigation can go ahead. And if the investigation does go ahead, like what would that look like? Like who would be investigated? Uh, what military leaders would be investigated? And under, um, you know, I, I guess kind of the key question also is like, how would they ever end up in court if not by their own volition? So the prosecutor, the prosecutor and her office would investigate allegations, not necessarily specific people. So, you know, she'll be conducting, I mean, I, I imagine a lot of the investigation will be conducted in Bangladesh, you know, speaking with victims in Bangladesh to try to establish, you know, what actually happened, who was in charge, what the chain of command was. I mean, it's a question as to whether or not she'll get any insiders um, uh, that could potentially talk about, you know, the military structure. Um, but, like, let's fast forward. Um, she's conducted this investigation. She's gathered this information. She comes up with, let's say, you know, two or three arrest warrants. I'm just talking hypothetically. Uh, you know, let's say they're in the military. I mean, you put your finger, I think, on what the key challenge will be moving forward, which is how do you get those people into custody? And, you know, it's not, it's not like Myanmar is going to hand them over. 
Um, you know, there's always the possibility if they travel to an ICC member country that that member country would be obliged to um, to arrest uh, the suspects. But, you know, it it's, you know, that's the open question. What will actually happen when we do have those arrest warrants? How will they be enforced? You know, it also seems that there are opportunities for like individual countries to um, kind of lend their sort of power to, you know, justice here in, in, in some meaningful ways. Like the United States recently slapped individual sanctions on, on some military leaders in Myanmar, correct? That's right. That's right. And I think that's an important step, you know, if we're looking at accountability, you know, through a broader lens than just criminal accountability, I think, um, you know, steps like that, you know, individual sanctions, making clear that human rights violations are taken seriously um, and that, you know, those who are suspected of committing human rights violations may face consequences, if not in a court, then in another way, I think is important. It's important to reinforce the message that, you know, those who commit these kinds of crimes um, will have to pay a price. And so what are groups like, say, yours, the Human Rights Watch doing? What are you doing to try to um, ensure a modicum of, of accountability for this this crime against humanity? So, I mean, a couple of different tracks. Um, you know, first and foremost, you know, we believe that this is a situation that the International Criminal Court should be seized of in its entirety. Um, I mentioned earlier that the prosecutor can look at a, a couple of discrete crimes because they were completed in Bangladesh. And that's an important first step, but it's by no means the only um, the only, it shouldn't be the only step with respect to Myanmar because, you know, we're talking about criminality that affects not just Rakhine State, but, you know, we've also seen, you know, war crimes, crimes against humanity in Kachin and Shan states. Um, and and so these are the, other states in uh, Myanmar with sort of ethnic minority populations that have been, um, you know, the victims of, of crimes. Exactly. And, you know, um, often at the, the hands of the military, you know, you, you see a pattern of behavior where, you know, perpetrators, you know, similarly, you know, the same or similar perpetrators are using the same or similar tactics across Myanmar, not just in one pocket. So to, to really, you know, address that criminality, what, what we would ideally like to see is the UN Security Council refer the entire situation to the International Criminal Court. And and referral, um, that's sort of the term of art, but it's it's basically the only path for the ICC to become seized of the entire situation because Myanmar isn't a member country. So they need authorization to basically go beyond what they've, you know, already, what the prosecutor is already trying to do. Mm -hmm. So so the reason that they can um, punish the crime of deportation is because Bangladesh is a um you know a member state and that's where the crime occurred but in order to investigate other crimes against humanity they need that security council referral and those are sort of hard to come by these days with uh disputes <laughs> at the are, security council but they are sudan was was referred back in 2005 or 2008 if i recall um, uh, it was two, I believe it was 2005 and then 2005 Libya, okay I was right the first Libya time. was Libya referred was, in 2011 right. okay. but look I, I mean that's theoretically that would be the most satisfactory means um, to create a path to justice for all of the crimes in Myanmar but realistically the council is really divided and you know as long as you know certain member countries you can probably guess which ones I'll say um, China yes <laughs> but as long as those countries you know remain opposed to ICC referral, it's not going to happen. But nonetheless, you know, I think beyond just making us feel good, I think it's important to keep that 
that request, that ask, that pressure on the Security Council, because, you know, this is also on their watch. It's not, I mean, it's obviously the responsibility of, of Myanmar to hold perpetrators to account. That's not going to happen anytime soon. It's a responsibility of the entire international community and, you know, specifically the Security Council. You know, they hold the keys to justice here. And if we stop asking for a referral, we're letting them off the hook. I mean, meanwhile, though, it seems that, you know, this this pursuit of justice uh, could be very, very long. Um, all, the, all the while, you have, what, like almost 700,000 refugees now in, in Bangladesh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I guess from the perspective of, of refugees, like – what is to be done? I mean, so so you have you have hundreds of thousands of refugees, but there's no one's taking them in. There's not much resettlement, um, and as you said earlier, there's not much for them to return to in in Myanmar. So yes, I mean yes, yes to all of that. I mean, I think at at this stage. You know, it's interesting in speaking with um, Rohingya refugees um, and others who have been affected by the crisis. You know, in some ways, what I've been struck by is how foreign this idea of accountability is to them. I mean, in part because there just hasn't been any. You know, the impunity in Myanmar is rampant for pretty much everything, not just the most serious crimes. And this idea that, you know, they've you know, they've been marginalized and discriminated against for such a long period of time. The idea that those who are responsible for that could one day be held to account is such a foreign concept. But what I've also been struck by is even just suggesting that idea, how engaged people have become. Um, And of course, the other side of that is that then it creates expectations that it will happen. And as you rightly pointed out, this is a really long road that we're talking about. But I think even talking about accountability, even sharpening it up, what it is that we mean by accountability and what are the concrete paths to get there. And it it creates space for people to put pressure, for instance, on those who stand in the way, like Russia and China, as I mentioned, but also I think helps to shift the terms of the debate in terms of what Myanmar has to do to be a credible actor moving forward, including with respect to refugees. So you mentioned, you know, October being this kind of key inflection point when a sort of decision might be made uh, whether or not a formal investigation into the crime of deportation will be will be opened. I guess sort of looking out into the next uh, year, I mean, are there other kind of key inflection points in that pursuit of justice or more broadly in the sort of situation of these refugees more generally uh, that will suggest to you how the situation will will unfold. So I, just on the October date, so that's the deadline for victims to submit their views on the investigation. That's not the deadline. Like, then the judges will use that to make a decision. It could be the next week. It could be next year. It's, it's, it's unclear how long they'll take. Um, so just to clarify that timeline. I mean, in terms of there is one accountability path that we haven't really talked about um, that could actually have um, more a more immediate impact for refugees, and that's through the International Court of Justice. Um, so several months ago, um, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation basically said, look, OIC members, um, we think, you know, we're looking, they created this, what they called it was an ad hoc committee on accountability, and it's chaired by the Gambia. 
And they they basically said, look, we this ad hoc committee came up with some legal avenues. We think all legal legal avenues should be explored um, to bring accountability for the Rohingya. And what what did that mean exactly? Well, through you know subsequent um, uh, resol- another resolution by the OIC, and then also um, the Gambia itself saying that they're willing to take this take Myanmar to the International Court of Justice. And the way they would do that would be using the Genocide Convention. And what's interesting about the Genocide Convention is that Myanmar is a party to it and doesn't have reservations on um, the one provision that would basically allow them to be hauled before the ICJ to explain, um, you know, actions with respect to, to the Rohingya. So it's it's probably worth just kind of taking a quick step back before you explain this further, yeah. that the International Court of Justice, unlike, say, the International Criminal Court, is not like a criminal tribunal where individuals are held criminally liable for actions they've taken, but rather it's a forum for countries to sort of sue each other. Exactly. And here they would basically a country could bring Myanmar to the International Court of Justice under the Genocide Convention to say, look, we think you violated um, the terms of this convention. And here's why. And um, so it's state accountability it's not individual accountability. But nonetheless, it, it does offer an opportunity to get sort of a judicial analysis of this really troubling set of facts, you know, that dates well before August 2017. You know, this larger pattern of sort of discrimination and persecution of, um, of the Rohingya, you know, over a number of years. On that ICJ process, though, so, okay, say the ICJ rules against Myanmar and say, yes, Myanmar, the government committed genocide. What happens next? Like, what is, there's no like punishment needed out. There, it's true. There's there's no punishment. It's, they can't they can't wield a big stick and <laughs> say that you you know you have to adhere to this judgment. But even before we get to a judgment, I think um, you know it's helpful to talk a little bit about how the process works because it could have a tangible impact impact for refugees. Um, so basically, you know, when things come before you know a state brings an action before the International Court of Justice, you know, it can take anywhere from months to years to to settle. Um, you know, the last time or, or one of the most notable genocide cases of recent memory is uh, when Bosnia brought Serbia, the former Yugoslavia, then Serbia, to the ICJ, you know, basically for the genocide um, committed in Srebrenica and elsewhere. And, you know, that process started in 1993. It wasn't resolved until 2007. So, you know, it's not a speedy process. But what's interesting about it is under the, the court statute is you know, the possibility of basically putting in place um, injunctive relief. And that's basically like a temporary order telling Myanmar, look, we think, you know, if if you can show like maybe the, the genocide could potentially be ongoing because of these four or five actions that you're doing or not doing, you need to stop doing them to preserve the underlying action. And that it could implement in a matter of weeks. So, you know, in terms of concrete benefit, you could imagine a scenario where, let's say, a country brings Myanmar to the ICJ and says, look, you violated X, Y, and Z provisions of this convention. By the way, we think the genocide might be ongoing, so we think you should refrain from hate speech, um, you know, halt discriminatory plans, allow humanitarian access. Basically, you know, using, you know, possible indicators of an ongoing genocide that's sort of linked to the concrete conditions on the ground to try to force Myanmar to change course. And and that, I, I suppose, is, is sort of, at this point, the best we can hope for? Well, it's already pretty ambitious. <laughs> I mean, I would say 
that, um, you know, Gambia has publicly committed to doing this. I mean, mm-hmm. let's see, let's see if they follow through. But in terms of, you know, sort of what concretely could happen, I think that combined with the ICC track, potentially, you know, opening the door to individual accountability, even for, you know, some crimes, not genocide, but, you know, to one, maybe three crimes against humanity. I think that that's sort of what the accountability picture could look like in the short to medium term. Uh, well, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a little um, dissatisfying, I suppose, that like perhaps the best method for accountability is that deportation case, because that's the one that does not require, say, Security Council referral, but that could also require an actual individual criminal accountability for these acts. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, I agree with you, which is why, you know, and I mean, that's why the pressure has to stay on the Security Council to refer the entire situation. Not because we think that they'll do it, but because they need to feel the shame for not doing it. Uh, well, Parampreet, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Parampreet Singh. This was a very helpful episode and, and does pair nicely, I think, with my conversation last week with Ben Rhodes. And as always, a big thank you to those of you who have become premium subscribers. You help me put this show on twice a week, every week. Thank you so much for your support. Reach out if you have any questions at all. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. See you next time. Bye.